Welcome to Points of Discussion. This month's series comes to us from PEDRA's Atopic Dermatitis Psoriasis Focus Study Group. Should JAK inhibitors be considered for first-line therapy in the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in children? Before we begin, it's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance or the program's speakers. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. This Points of Discussion series is a bit of a departure from our regular point-counterpoint debate format. Instead, this series is a moderated discussion about the pros, cons, and nuances of using JAK inhibitors over other therapies for the treatment of severe atopic dermatitis in children. This is Episode 1, JAK Inhibitors versus Traditional Therapies. Your moderator is Dr. Minelli Liu. Dr. Liu is a practicing pediatric dermatologist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. She's the co-director of the Vascular Anomalies Center and is an associate professor of clinical dermatology at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. She is also the co-chair for PEDRA's Atopic Dermatitis Psoriasis Focus Study Group. Now, I'd like to turn it over to Dr. Liu. Thank you, Jen, for the introduction. Um, and we're very excited today to have our panel of speakers. We think that this is a very timely podcast. Uh, Janus kinase inhibitors, as many of you know, are oral small molecule inhibitors of the Janus kinase family. Uh, they're otherwise known as JAK inhibitors, um, and they exert their action in inflammatory diseases by modulating the JAK-STAT signaling pathway. And this month, two members of this family, Upadacitinib and abrocitinib were approved by the FDA for the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Upadacitinib in patients 12 and above, starting at 15 milligrams per day, with the possibility of increasing to 30 milligrams per day, and abrocitinib for those 18 years and above. And these approvals are viewed as seminal by many in our field and could open up uh, potential for to better the care of our patients with moderate to severe atopic derm. But questions exist at this time in our community of pediatric dermatologists. For example, when should I consider using a JAK inhibitor? And what special consideration should I give when evaluating the risk to benefit ratio and appropriateness of these agents for my patients? It is now my great pleasure to introduce our speakers. We have four wonderful speakers tonight. Dr. Powler is the chair of the Department of Dermatology Walter J. Hamlin Professor of Dermatology and Professor of Pediatrics at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine. She's also a co-founding member of PEDRA and co-chair of PEDRA's Atopic Dermatitis and Psoriasis Focus Study Group. It's Amy Power. Dr. Kirk Corian is a practicing pediatric dermatologist and chief of dermatology at Children's National Hospital in Washington, DC. She also serves on PEDRA's meetings committee. Hi, it's Yasmin Kerkorian. Dr. Siegfried is a pediatric dermatologist, professor of pediatrics and dermatology at St. Louis University School of Medicine. She is also a co-founding member of PEDRA and currently serves 
on PDRA's nominating committee. Hi, it's Elaine Siegfried. And last but not least is Dr. Yu, who is a pediatric dermatologist, director of contact and occupational dermatology, and assistant professor of adult and pediatric dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Yu also serves on several PDRA committees. Hi, it's Jeff Yu. Our first topic of discussion is for severe atopic dermatitis. If you had to choose between an oral JAK inhibitor and a traditional immunosuppressant, whether that be oral steroids, cyclosporin, methotrexate, whichever your agent of choice might be as an option for a patient, which would you choose and why? I think that's a very difficult question right now. We we now have available, uh, at least with upadacitinib at this point, and uh, I suspect in the near future with abracitinib, uh, a medication for our adolescent patient that works that works very quickly and uh, reaches higher levels of efficacy than what we've seen previously, even with cyclosporin and, and uh, as well with, with methotrexate, which have been really our workhorse immunosuppressants. I think that for me, it's going to be a situation where I would sit down with the family and discuss options. This is really uh, a, a classic case of where shared decision-making with the family has to come into play. On the one hand, we have a, a medication that uh, may, may take a while to get, and sometimes that's certainly a consideration, uh, as opposed to methotrexate or cyclosporin that we can just write a prescription for and know that the patient's likely to be able to get it right away. On the other hand, uh, we have to make a decision about, do we wanna use cyclosporin or even a short course of steroid because we know that the methotrexate can take a while to work. It may depend on the severity. For example, if I have a patient who's moderate and I think I can get away with getting them on methotrexate and it might take, uh, as was recently described in a paper from Ellen Irvine's group with 47 children, uh, a mean of, of 11.3 weeks to really start seeing a, a good effect with the methotrexate as opposed to uh, perhaps an even better effect in two weeks with one of the, the JAK inhibitors. So we could talk about um, differences in terms of efficacy and delay that may or may not be important to the family because we also have to, of course, talk about safety. And um, from the safety standpoint, we know from relatively small numbers of, of adolescents, um, when studies are combined, we're talking about a few hundred patients who've been, been on this drug in, in studies who are in the adolescent range with, with um, upadacitinib, that there haven't been a lot of side effects. We know that with upadacitinib, the biggest side effect that we need to be concerned about is, not, um, with, is, is acne, which is mild, moderate, and relatively easily handled, and not necessarily even a typical acne, but more of a folliculitis type of an issue. We know that with abracitinib, the most common issue is, is nausea and sometimes vomiting. And that um, this is kind of overlapping with the problem that we have with methotrexate, whereas uh, we, we saw about a 17% chance of, of uh, nausea with the abracitinib in the methotrexate uh, study that we did, the international study where we looked at percentage of side effects almost 25% were experiencing uh, either nausea or dyspepsia. So, so we have two drugs that both can give GI side effects. I think the bigger concern that we must be presenting with the families is the possibility 
of other issues with these JAK inhibitors and a lot of concerns about what we don't know. Methotrexate has been around for a while. Cyclosporin has been for a while. These are the evils that we know, so to speak, because we know that the uh, risk of cyclosporin can, can involve hypertension and renal issues in particular, but, but certainly others and, and increased risk of infections. We feel very comfortable with, with methotrexate. But even though we don't have many other side effects in the studies with the JAK inhibitors, the numbers are small and we don't have long-term data at all. That said, it's a very small number that have had any of the uh, transient and not clinically consequential issues related to counts or uh, CPK levels or lipid levels, uh, what we might be similarly drawing blood for as we do with methotrexate and cyclosporin. Uh, I will emphasize that at least to date, um, there have not been associated um, side effects that we're fearing, increased risk of the severe infection of the serious infections or the cardiovascular issues or malignancies or the thrombo, venous thromboembolisms that we're so worried about from trials with JAK inhibitors that are currently existing that aren't as selective. And these have occurred not in atopic dermatitis, but in rheumatoid arthritis, which is a population that is more at risk for these to begin with. So uh, I've, I've said a lot here, but I think you have to present both sides of, of the story, but certainly for patients who are more severe, where the family is very concerned about getting this under control quickly, there might be a role for the JAK inhibitors in those needle phobic patients or patients who otherwise uh, can't be on dupilumab or fail dupilumab and need to advance to something else. What do you think, Yasmin? Would you like to add something? So I think that it's always going to be attractive to parents to discuss the fact that something is FDA approved. That doesn't mean that um, because traditional immunosuppression isn't FDA approved, we wouldn't use them. We know in many circumstances, things are not approved and we use them. But I think the fact that we're going to have a, a drug approved 12 plus will at least make that be on the table when we're doing shared decision-making, when we're comparing it to our traditional immunosuppressive drugs. Um, in my experience, at least while I use cyclosporin, probably more than many as my bridging agent, I don't, it of course is not a durable drug. And I have had, because I use it now in many hundreds of kids, a variety of adverse effects besides even your classic um, ones, you know, you, hirsutism, or I should say hypertrichosis and gingival hyperplasia, those are not a big deal, but we've had serious side effects such as psychiatric ones that you don't run across until you've used the drug a lot. So I think that cyclosporin we know is not a durable agent and we have different opinions on this panel. I know Dr. Siegfried's going to come in on this, but methotrexate, in my opinion, is not very effective for eczema. It may take the edge off, but it's really not giving the slam dunk results that we need. So compared with traditional immunosuppression, I do think there's going to be an argument to be made for the JAKs. Um, and then of course, and it's the second part when we discuss dupilumab, that's a different discussion, but I think there really is a place for the JAKs when we compare them with traditional immunosuppression. And we're also gonna get a lot of data from our room colleagues using these drugs for those indications and even younger populations. And that may give us um, some comfort in the safety realm. And I agree that um, I have had several patients, uh, certainly many patients who haven't even responded to cyclosporin, 
but uh, many that have responded to cyclosporin when I've tried to transition them to methotrexate have failed. And, and that's very hard for them. I think when we look at the efficacy rates with these new JAK inhibitors, uh, they certainly are far superior to, the, to what we've seen with the traditional agents. One thing I do wanna bring up is uh, the BAXD warning. Uh, and I do think that um, we need to be able to have language that can discuss this in a way that it's not gonna be too frightening to parents if we're going to use these drugs. Uh, and and I, again, I think that needs to be couched in the terms of, we don't know the long-term effects, but that the uh, boxed warning was purely based on what we know from trials with rheumatoid arthritis, not atopic dermatitis. Largely, we're talking about agents like tofacitinib. Thank you. Should we get um, a couple other people to pitch in? Uh, yeah, I, I'd be happy to. You know, Dr. Kokorian brought up a great issue about on-label use. And, you know, having uh, on-label level high, level one data to support, you know, our prescribing is becoming increasingly important, but in particular, just about governing access to drugs. And I think it's just been nothing short of a miracle that our pipeline for severe inflammatory diseases has expanded so much, you know, starting with the pipeline for psoriasis, which then kind of, you know, helps support a pipeline for atopic dermatitis, which is a, just a giant unmet need. And I think that, you know, pharmaceutical companies uh, have, have now uh, realized that it's, um, it's great to be able to study their drugs and skin diseases for drugs that are going to be used for other inflammatory conditions because it's easier to study. You know, you can see the changes. So having said all that, it's great to have those choices of on-label drugs. But, you know, I, I still think there's an incredible place for um, the off-label standard of care drugs. But the problem with particularly methotrexate, I don't think so much for cyclosporin. I think cyclosporin and JAK inhibitors share many, many qualities. So cyclosporin is a, you, you can't compare them. It, they're, it's, a, they're, it's apples and oranges. Comparing the JAK inhibitors even cyclosporin with, with methotrexate, for example, and dupilumab, which I think of fairly similarly because they're both very slow at, slow onset and, and you have more long-term safety comfort with both of those. Whereas cyclosporin and JAK inhibitors are quick onset, you know, high um, risk. And so I don't think of them in the same way. And so I don't think about one being first line or the other being first line. I think about quick acting, more powerful immunosuppressants being one way to go, you know, for kids who are really, really suffering. Although I, I got to put in a plug for putting them in the hospital because I, I think they get just as well quickly if you put them in the hospital, you know, four or five days, it really takes the edge off. But, you know, if you can't put them in the hospital, then you'd want to give them a JAK inhibitor or a cyclosporin. And, and of course, there may be nuances. And one day we're going to be able to really distinguish which subsets of atopic dermatitis are going to better respond to which drugs. But until then, you know, you want a quick drug, use a JAK inhibitor, you want to a slow, uh, you know, uh, uh, you want, it's like the tortoise and the hare, <laughs> you know, so you want the hare, you use cyclosporin or a JAK inhibitor, you want the tortoise, you use dupilumab or methotrexate. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think everyone has a great point about these traditional medications. However, I do have to say one aspect 
aspect of this is not so much just what we rather use and even what the patients want to use. I think a large part of this is what can they get? Um, and I think access via insurance and insurance approval is going to be a big part of the story. You know, sometimes I'm using methotrexate or cyclosporin purely as a temporary medication until I can get them onto something that I personally would prefer, for example, currently dupilumab until the JAK inhibitors have just been approved. And so God knows what the insurance companies and what hoops you have to jump through in order to get these medications now. Um, I think if you're talking about quick onset, yeah, JAK inhibitors may have quick onset, but not if you're waiting three weeks to get it approved by insurance before you can actually start using it. So in my mind, at least, you know, if I want to get them quickly under control, cyclosporin, prednisone, something like that, where we have you know, decades of experience with and comfort using and personal anecdotes that we can tell the patients and patients know that you've used it for a lot of, you know, for a long time. I think that brings a certain amount of comfort to them to know that, oh yeah, um, so-and-so says that this is safe, you know, and I trust my doctor and I'm going to go with that. Personally, I feel like methotrexate have worked well for me, especially in younger children that may not be candidates yet for um, certain injectable medications. Um, and I think, you know, again, personal comfort, and personal experience and knowing what to monitor and, you know, just having that level of experience really says something versus at least for me so far, JAK inhibitors are still a great unknown. Yeah, we have studies that go out to, you know, months to a year, but I think what happens five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I don't know. And I don't know how many parents are willing to take that risk with a two, three, four-year-old. Um, so I think that's kind of the big question. Well, I don't think we have this available right now for two, three, yeah. four-year-olds. Uh, we don't even have a recidivant yet for a 12-year-old, right. but certainly uh, when we're talking about adolescence, which is where the discussion really needs to be right now, because that's the yeah. only relevant one. I, I think that one of the problems with all of these um, more expensive medications is that we don't know in whom we're going to get access and what hoops we have to jump through until we try to do that. And that often becomes a dilemma. Do we start with... Uh, some uh, cyclosporin or even steroid because someone is really suffering uh, because I don't know if I'm going to be able to get these. And, and if we're in a situation where we might even be able to use samples, we still don't know if someone's going to be able to get the medication until we put it in, it's refused, we appeal, etc. The other point to make is that if you look at the label, let's say for a patacitinib um, for a 13-year-old candidate, it does talk about the requirement to use something else, topical and systemic or phototherapy before using it. So it may be difficult to get to that first line without trying something else like the dupilumab or the methotrexate or the phototherapy. Uh, there will, it looks like be some kind of a step required. There's one other argument I would make for JAK inhibitors because they're non-selective, again, much like cyclosporin. So, you know, because atopic dermatitis is a phenotype, you know, some kids have pure type two inflammatory disease. And then other kids at the other end of the spectrum are much more like overlap. And I think, you know, some of the kids who actually failed Dupixent fail that because they sort of have a psoriasis component to their disease where you would expect a JAK inhibitor you could, it's almost dumbed down because you don't have to understand and recognize the different phenotypes of atopic dermatitis, you know, to, to pick the right drug because it's going to be, I think, more likely, just like cyclosporin, to maybe work broadly. The only people it wouldn't work for are those 
atopic dermatitis phenotype kids who have truly like some primary immune deficiencies, like of antibody deficiency or one of those other, you know, sort of subsets that, you know, gets mistaken for atopic dermatitis, <laughs> you know, but one day I'm, I hope that we'll have better spelled out, um, uh, you know, either biomarkers or diagnostic criteria that'll help us with our selection, you know, be it a very specific type two inhibitor or a, you know, an IL-17 or a 1223 or something non-specific like a JAK inhibitor. Yeah, we, we all can, we all can hope that. Uh, yeah. But I think this is again, your, your point about the broader uh, immune modulation effect of the JAK inhibitor which starts to bring closer to the methotrexate or the cyclosporine in terms of having that broad efficacy. And when we think about other disorders too, uh, that, that may be improved by the JAK inhibitor or cyclosporine or methotrexate, uh, sometimes that also sways us. This discussion has been wonderful. And thank you for the wonderful discussion, the many points that you have brought up, the many questions. Um, and um, for making us think about these really important issues that are so important for our patients. Thank you to our moderator, Dr. Manelli Liu. A very special thank you to our speakers, Drs. Paller, Siegfried, Kerkorian, and you. I'd also like to thank our program sponsors, AbV Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, Regeneron, and Sanofi Genzyme. Pedra is solely responsible for all the program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. You can listen to episode two, Jack Inhibitors versus Biologics. It's out and available now. To find more educational programming, please visit www.pedraresearch.org forward slash education, or follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can also download the PEDRA app by searching Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance in your Apple or Google Play app stores. Thanks so much for listening.